Turn with me to Luke, the gospel according to Luke. We are in chapter 6. It's known as the Beatitudes, as I mentioned last week. I think it's different than Matthew 5 on a shorter version. Um, as preachers like to teach and preach in different locations, different settings. We're in chapter 6, verses 27 through 36 is our passage this morning. A passage you heard uh, Carl read to us, the passage that we're looking at, chapter 6, again, verse 27 through 36. Um, and it's probably a familiar passage to many of you. you probably heard it before. Uh, love your enemies. You probably have not sat down, sat down lately, though, and, you know, a cup of coffee early morning and thinking, who's my enemy, and have I really, truly loving them well? Maybe some of you had. I don't know. I have not. We're trying to just figure out how to love family <laughs> and neighbors, right? N never mind enemies. Let's, be let's begin remembering the context. Remember, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, beginning his Galilean ministry, opens up a scroll. They give it to him, he opens a scroll. Isaiah 61 says, this is me. This is the one Isaiah spoke about. I'm the ultimate anointed one. I'm the ultimate Messiah who will proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. I will be the one anointed who will send, be sent out to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The God's grace is among us. Jesus is full of grace and truth, John tells us. He did it all over Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come in the person of Christ, demonstrating his kingly authority, his kingly power over evil spirits, disease, nature itself, declaring that the Son of Man has authority and power even to forgive sins, that which only God can do. The crowds begin to increase, we've seen that. His disciples began to multiply, and opposition against him began to grow and become more aggressive. We saw in chapter 6, verse 12, that Jesus leaves his disciples and followers and the crowd and goes up to a mountain to pray, seeking the Father's face, seeking the Father's will, comes down from the, uh, this, the, the, the mountain to a level plain or level place and names his 12 apostles. He would name those 12, those who would give unique and special authority as they preach the gospel, as they declare the gospel to heal, to, to deliver men and women from the bondage of evil. And these 12 apostles now are on standing with Jesus. There's a large crowd of disciples, chapter 6 tells us. And he looks at them in chapter 6, verse 20. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So here we have Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to be a new community of followers of Jesus those who will express themselves in the world as disciples of Christ. Last week we said it was very important to recognize that Jesus is speaking to his followers. They're the ones, chapter 6, verse 20, uh, are the blessed ones. The blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. They are an inheritors of the kingdom. And the reason that they are blessed is because of their connection, inheritance, and relationship with Jesus Christ. We said blessedness is not like happiness. Blessedness, we said, at its heart is based on objective truth that brings a joy that transcends happenstance or circumstances. Last week, we looked at Psalm 32 to get a good definition. It's a great place to be, to see what it blesses the one whose transgressions are forgiven. 
sins covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He said this divine blessedness is the, is the inner joy and serenity, the peace, inner satisfaction and composure, which comes from knowing that we're, we're, we're right with God, we're blessed, we're forgiven, we're, we're, our sin has been covered, forgiven and free, uh, released from pretense and, and deceit, forgiven, righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And our contentment is not the product, we said, of happenstance, but of God's loving grace and kindness toward us. So when Jesus announced his blessed state of his disciples, he was making an objective judgment about them. They are objects of God's grace. That's why they're blessed. They're objects of God's grace and are, are joyfully content and satisfied because of the grace of God. And out of this blessedness, out of this love, out of this grace, this objective truth, which is the gospel, the work of Jesus on the cross, they are to live lives radically different than the world does. That's the point. Which brings us to this very important passage. Radical statement, maybe one of the most radical statements Jesus makes to his followers. They are the blessed ones. They are to love their enemies. This new community called out by God, brought in through the grace of God, through the love of God, by grace alone, have received a new heart at, new, at the new birth. In their regeneration, they are to love in an extraordinary way in comparison to the ways those outside the community loves. The point of the passage. In other words, Jesus' disciples then and now, us this morning, are being commanded to love our enemies. Not, it's not a condition of becoming a disciple. You don't love your way into the kingdom of God. You don't love your way into the grace of God. You don't love your way into the forgiveness of God. It's by grace alone you love your way out of it. Love flows from it. Three movements in this passage. Love's direction, reciprocation, and motivation. Love's direction, love's reciprocation, love's motivation. Let's look at them together. A couple of things I just want to mention as we get into the text. Just I think it's important. First thing I want to talk about is the word love. Luke now, for the first time in his gospel account, mentions the word love. And it is the word, you may have heard this before, it is the word agape. Just so you know, it's not a noun here, it's a verb. It's action. It's action. Loving one's enemy does not rest on our emotions, but on the command to the, of the will to love. Not about the warm and fuzzies. It's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not commanding his followers, you must feel a certain way, but they are to act in a certain way. Emotions we know are fickle, but actions and the will can be commanded. That's what Jesus is doing here. One commentator writes, often loving feelings follow loving actions much like a caboose follows an engine. Jesus' commands, however, are addressed to the engine of the will, not the caboose of feelings, end quote. Some of you may know there are four different Greek words used and translated love. Three of them we find in the New Testament. The first one is storge, meaning natural affections. Eros is romantic love. Philia, Philadelphia, the love of friendship, brotherly love. Here Jesus is speaking about agape, which means loving the unworthy, loving, loving someone 
which is drawn out not by their merit, not something they have done, but simply by the gracious love of another person. This command and action to love others is the way in which God loves us. And although the word agape in the Greek means sacrificial love, family, it is, it is the gospel. It is, it is God through Christ in the gospel that fills this word agape with rich and unequal significance because it now is defined by God's unmerited and unconditional love towards sinners who deserve wrath and judgment. Romans 5, 6. At just the right time when we were still powerless, useless, helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love. He didn't just feel a certain way. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, separated from God, rebellion against God, enmity with God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the beauty of this word agape explodes in in the unique expression of God's love in the gospel. And now the behavioral expectations of the followers of Christ is commanded to, to love our enemies. It's the kind of love appropriate for disciples who have experienced the love of God. Number two, I think it's important to recognize that Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, begins his characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, singular. Fruit of the Spirit. It's singular. And, and, and look what he says in verse 27. I say to you, it's a command. It's imperative. It's, it's not something to think about. It's something God's commanding us. And we recognize that as Paul mentions the word love in the fruit of the Spirit, you know, you know love, joy, peace, patience, the foundation of it is love. So I conclude that, I conclude by that, that this love that God is talking about cannot, cannot, will not be generated by the human will. This agape love is not generated by the human, but by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Number three, speaking of love, love is not God. Love is not God. God is love. Very different. 1 John 4. Therefore, any action, we're talking about doing here, we're talking about it being a verb, any action of behavior that can be described as loving someone must come from God set forth in Scripture. In other words, it's very important that we recognize that because in the culture in which we live, where evil is spoken of as good and good is spoken of as evil, love needs to be defined according to what God calls love, not what you and I feel. It's not a euphoria based on our feelings. It's defined by God, by the will of God, by the word of God. Lastly, love is not, this agape love is not like a contract that we have today between two people managed by what we do. It's more about what you do for me, that's a contract. And, what, and when, when you're done doing for me, love ends. That's not agape love. The love Jesus calls us goes beyond all those things. What is required, excuse me, to possess true love is an understanding of what the word of God says, and the way in which God loves us and how that love that he loves us is now not only poured out to us but poured out through us to others. How? Verse 27. But I say to you, love your enemies. How? Do good 
to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Divine love returns good for evil. Each imperative in, in the Greek is a present tense, meaning and implying it's continual action. You need to continue to do this. People hate you, we do good to them. People curse you, we bless them. People abuse you, we pray for them. Remember back in chapter, same chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus declared that those who are blessed of God are to rejoice and leap for joy on the day when they're hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned on account of the Son of Man. Think, think for a moment, someone who, may, who hates you or excludes you, Jesus said you go from leaping and jumping for joy and loving them in return. That can't be, that, that family, that cannot be generated by you, by the human will. That can only be generated, motivated through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we were once haters of God, that's the gospel, at enmity with him. And our God loved us anyway. And Jesus is saying and is showing us that, that that's the kind of love that does good, what God has done. It blesses those who curse you. It's common in that day when someone curses you or becomes an enemy, you return that curse to your enemy with other curses down upon them. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, not my disciples. They curse you. You invoke God's blessing and favor on behalf of those who would want the opposite from you. Remember Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, being pummeled with rocks, is about to die, falls on his knees and cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Say, Pastor, isn't hatred for our enemies? I mean, it feels right. It feels like they were made to be hated. They harm us. The least we could do is shut our heart off to them. But if we're honest... Those who harm us, what do we want to do? Harm them back. Harm them back. We tell ourselves, you know what? Revenge is only right. Aren't we glad Jesus doesn't treat us that way? He says, pray for those who abuse you. The word abuse means be mistreated, deeply disrespected. Jesus says we are to pray for them. This obviously does not mean that we are to allow the abuser to continue. Let me say that again. This obviously does not mean that we are to allow the abuser to continue in their abuse. This prayer for them really is an expression of a heart issue that flows to the will. Look at verse 45 of chapter 6. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, that's the gospel, produces good and evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks you see the love God is calling us to exhibit is a love that demonstrates genuine concern for the welfare of another person looking to serve and do good to those who cannot return the grace love your enemies was not what the scribes taught in that day. We learned that in chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus says, you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The 
The Old Testament says we should love our neighbor, clearly in Leviticus. Jesus said, I want to go one step further. We don't just love God and love our neighbor. We have to love our enemies as himself. We are, by nature, an enemy of God. We have received unconditional grace and love through Christ. He's loved us. He has loved us when we were all together unlovely. God loved us. When we were not grateful to him, his mercy was poured out on us. When we sinned against him, he never returned evil for evil. And the gospel shows us how God relates to his people and is the same pattern that Jesus is saying, I want you to display as imitators of Christ, as children of God. So we could ask these questions. Community group leaders will, will have it for you. You can talk about it in your community group. What good have I done for an enemy? What words of blessing have I spoken over them? Have I spent time intercessing and just praying for those who hate and revile me? Kent Hughes, we cannot long continue to hate someone we are constantly bringing before God's throne of grace. As we pray, we begin to recognize that our enemies need the same thing we need, forgiveness of sins, the power to lead a life, a holy life. This gives us more sympathy for their situation, enabling us, enabling us to love, end quote. Love, do good, bless, pray, verse 29 and 30. To one who offers the other Excuse me, to the one strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Verse 29, if you commentators are, are mixed on two different interpretations. Uh, in those days in antiquity, you would, you would slap someone backhanded across the face, and it wasn't necessarily a, a, a sense of physical violence. It was more of an insult, more of an insult, a backhand, and you know, that's the practice. Uh, and Jesus' point then would be that in the midst of rejection, in the midst of an insult, don't respond with insult back, but respond with love. Others see it more as a love, uh, an attitude of love, expressing itself that, that we don't take revenge against other people. We don't take revenge. The world says, why, you slap me, you know what, I, I shoot you. That's the world. Either way, we're not to take revenge. We're not to, to get even. Insult for insult. Rejection for rejection. But to love. Again, make it clear. Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not commanding us that we are to continue to be physically abused. You should just let someone beat you. That's not what he's saying. Scripture is clear. If and when we could stop the action of evil, we should. We have been given a God-given responsibility to make sure that physical violence is dealt with by proper authorities in the home, at work, and in the church. We see it all over where these, this, this abuse is going on and people are trying to hide things. It will never happen at King's Chapel. Justice obligates us to do justice. Love mercy, do justice, Micah tells us. It obligates us both to uphold the law and insist that others do that as well. Reporting crime is both a, a civic responsibility and an act of compassion, hoping the person will change. 
to protect the innocent party and never be a part of an evil cover-up. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not the spirit of which he's teaching. Leon Morris says this about taking it literally. If, if Christians took this one absolutely literally, there would be soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another prosperous idlers of thieves. Jesus is seeking a readiness among his followers to give and give and give and give. The Christian should never, excuse me, refrain from giving out of a love, out of a love for his possessions. They should never refrain from giving out of a love for possessions. Love must be ready to be deprived of everything if need be. Of course, he says, in a given case, it may not be the way of love to give, but it's love that must decide whether or not to withhold or to give, not our possessions. In other words, what he's saying is love must drive love. Love must drive love. We must be at a place where we are willing to give and to give and to give. I think we can sum up this, this 29 and 30 with the, with the simple that spirit-empowered love is generous. Spirit-empowered love is generous. And Christ's followers are to be marked by generous giving. Meeting needs whenever possible. Are there limits to what we can give? Absolutely. Are there times when it's not loving to give? Yes. Can our giving and giving and giving uh, um, um, without wisdom foster an unhealthy dependency? Yes. We need to be wise. But agape love must drive our decisions. Love drives our decisions. Not selfish love, not, not love of things, love of money, love of possessions. And Jesus sums it up in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Notice what he doesn't say. Don't do to others what you don't want others to do to you. Don't do wrong if you don't want wrong being done. That's not what he says. He turns that around. That's not the law of love. That's simply saying, you know what? I'm just not going to retaliate. That's not what Jesus is saying. He said, treat people the way we want them to treat us, regardless of how they treat us. How do you want to be treated? Do everything to bless, not just family, not just friends, but enemies. See, he takes this golden rule and he turns it around. He doesn't just say, you don't want to be treated that way, don't treat other people. He's saying, treat them how you want to be treated. This positive direction to love rather than only refraining from doing evil is how the community of God's people are to live. I know how hard it is. I've been in this text all week. Reciprocation, love's reciprocation. So now Jesus takes that teaching and he goes to verse 32, 33, and he builds on it in a negative way about reciprocating love. Three negative examples on how disciples love and how they are to love others is supposed to be different from the sinners, he says. In each case, love, each one of these cases, three cases, the love, help, and provision offered is an assumption of reciprocity. That ain't me, right? Okay. What? I think I shut it off. Reciprocity, it's what you can get back. It's the kind of love that's based really on self-interest. Love, do good, lend for your gain. That's what Jesus is speaking about. Most people are willing to give, to love and to give and to serve if there's a return. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. 
lately in the political realm, quid pro quo. We've heard that many times. But what kind of love is that? Again, family, the love he's calling us to, this biblical love, this, this Holy Spirit love, this agape love, this spirit-empowered love is beyond our own capabilities. It's not just friends, acquaintances, family, enemies. Not restricted to people who love you, who help you, serve you, repay you, but extends to those who hate you and curse you and could never repay you. How's that possible? Well, it's only possible when we take our eyes off of ourselves and live out of the love we ourselves have received from God. And now by the gospel and through the gospel, we have the grace, enough, enough grace to give to other people. It's a selfless and an unselfish love. Family, do, do we realize, do we realize how, how God-centered and how piercing this kind of love is to those around us. Have you ever seen the kind of love, that kind of love, nothing in return, where, where people are, are hated and rejected and reviled, and yet there's love given to them, knowing nothing will be returned? I hope everyone here who's a Christ follower says, yes, I know that love, because that's the gospel. That's the gospel. In the gospel, God's love is expended to us. Those of us who have nothing to offer but our sin are brought into God's love and mercy. As I was thinking about that this week, I'm reminded of the Trinitarian love of God being poured out on one another, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it reminded me of a great book. If you've never read it, I read it some years ago, but it's a good read by C.S. Lewis. It's called Mere Christianity. I love to give that book out, maybe as skeptics or new believers. Mere Christianity talks about his conversion experience by C.S. Lewis. And he calls the love of God and, and the fact that we are brought into the love of God, he calls it a dance. Let me read to you from his book. He says, God is not a static thing, not even a person, singular, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you would, uh, will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. And the third person is called, in technical language, the Holy Ghost, or the Spirit of God. He says, this spirit of love is, from all eternity, a love going between the Father and the Son. And now, why does that matter? He says, it matters more than anything else in the whole world. The whole dance, drama, or pattern of this Three personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to enter into the pattern, into take his place in the dance. See what he's saying? He says, there's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. End quote. God's love for us has been shown to us through the gospel, and he invites us in to experience his love through the work of Jesus on the cross. You see, at the center of our lives is selfishness and, 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 and selfishness and self-centeredness. And that life is stationary because, as C.S. Lewis would say, we want everyone to orbit around us. We want everyone to orbit around us because it's all about us. 
So you could serve other people, you could serve the poor, you could, you could, you could care for other people, but in the end, it's really about ourselves. Everything is about me, and that's the end, of, that's the means to the end of orbiting around me. But God is utterly different. Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are characterized by their, uh, their, their mutually self-giving love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not stand still and ask the other one, he would say, to orbit around them, but rather they are glorifying and loving one another. Do you realize that if God was what they call unipersonal, there was just one person within the Godhead, there couldn't be love until he creates? Because love is action? But because God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's love. God is love from all eternity. It's his, it's his character. It's his attribute. And therefore, love is his essence as they pour out love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what C.S. Lewis is saying and what I think is applicable here is as this gospel is preached and we respond to the, to the work of Jesus, even though we're haters, we're at enmity with God, God invites us into this loving relationship and he pours out our love and we enter into that kind of love. And in that love, we are to pour out ourselves loving other people through the gospel love that he showed us. That's the point. And one of the ways that people will come to know the infinite love of God is to enter that dance and to show love to, to people that nobody else could love or would love. And when we get that, no strings attached, we'll say. We'll serve to love people and to meet needs and to care for others. Christ-like love gives without demand to get back. It's a transforming love. Love of grace. It's, it's what we have received. And that's why he says as follows, I want you to be different than sinners, those who are outside the community. Our love is because you have entered into that dance. You have been overwhelmed by the gospel of love. You are then to love other people. How would Christ follow his new community be different? He would love people. Sinners love. Sinners do good. Sinners lend money to... to uh, but the difference is Christ's followers love and do good and lend with nothing for them to get in return. Such action should mark Christ's followers. That's what he's saying. You're the new community. They weren't, the scribes and Pharisees were not loving people. And Jesus says, no, this, this should be your mark. You should be distinctive and different from the world, different from the scribes and the Pharisees. Therefore, Jesus is saying, here's how you treat your enemies. You love and forgive them. Here's how you treat those who are less fortunate than you. How you treat those who are different or indifferent to you. People who you would consider ungrateful and wicked. Jesus says, love them. If you're my disciples, love them, for I have loved you. That's the point. The love of God in and through the community of God's people is displayed as we become, as we show forth, I should say, this radical transformation of God's love in our hearts, sacrificial and radical love that we have experienced. That's why I say it's not generated by you, but by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in this last point, love motivation. But... You reiterate what he already said. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. It doesn't mean just empty your bank account and give it out. Be generous. It's not about you. It's about serving. 
and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he, that's God, is kind to the ungrateful. He is kind to those who are evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus commands his followers to do good and not to base their behavior on, on receiving any reciprocal treatment. Now in the promise that in so doing so, your reward will be from him. Meaning our effort should not be based on the things that the world will provide for us in return, but on a treasure that, it is, that, that cannot be exhausted. Treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Listen, it's costly to love others. It's thankless many times to love others. And Jesus says your payback is later. Now, rewards, you know, kind of a touchy subject. So let me just say something. Rewards, that when the Bible speaks of rewards, is never meant to compare like I got more rewards than you do. I'm trying to get my, you know, my, my bank account higher than yours. I'm going to have a bigger house. Like that's not what Jesus means by rewards, okay? Rewards also need to be very, very careful when we talk about rewards. The idea that salvation and redemption is by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, and that somehow now by me showing love, I'm earning some sort of grace through my obedience. That's not what Jesus means either. Salvation, redemption, and inheritance, and all the things that we receive in eternity has nothing to do with what you do, has everything to do with what he has done. We talk about the reward of eternal life, the Bible talks about. That doesn't mean do a good job and you can earn your salvation. No. No. But rather a sense of a final blessing that was earned by Christ, but inherited by the believer when we see him face to face. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this, this working through the gospel and receiving the blessing of God. This is, what he write, this is what they write. Yet notwithstanding the person of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight. In other words, they're not perfect. But that he, God, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections, end quote. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that our labor is not in vain. That's a word of encouragement to us. That when we serve the Lord, we love people, and we've got our eyes fixed upon Jesus, and the gospel is, is permeating our lives, and the love of God is flowing out, and we're serving the Lord. Hear the word, your labor is not in vain. That's to be an encouragement to you, not, not an act of pride, but an encouragement of those who are laboring in love. John Piper, there's nothing morally inferior about looking for a reward, for a reward for our behavior provided that the reward is ultimately more of Christ as the supreme joy of our souls, end quote. Listen, a new body, no more tears, restored relationships, eternal life, inheritance. But the greatest reward of all rewards, family, is simply God and the enjoyment of his presence forever. 
The greatest reward is God himself, Psalms 116. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand. Are pleasures forevermore. <laughs> More of Christ. More of Christ. But these last verse and a half is, I think, the key for the motivation and the power to enable us to do what Christ wants us to do. Look with me. In, in, in verse 36, 35, the word there, the verb, will be sons of the Most High, will be sons of the Most High, it does not mean will become sons of the Most High. That's not the verb. The verb is will show yourself to be. The emphasis is not on entering into the relationship with God as a reward. Since our relationship is bound up in grace alone, rather it's a response to the disciples' demonstration of God's character, displaying conduct that we already belong to God by grace. You will show forth that God's grace is in your life, that you have been accepted by God, that your sins have been forgiven, you know the gospel, you understand the gospel, and out of the gospel, you will show the world that you're a child of the Most High God. That's the point. And in order to understand, in order to understand that we have become children of God, daughters and sons of God, we have to understand the word adoption, okay? We have to understand the word adoption. Although God loves everyone, loves all creation, Galatians 4 says that everybody in creation, uh, it, it belongs to him, they're loved and they're valued, but by the act of grace, God takes us from the world of, 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 of brokenness and darkness and transferred us into his beloved kingdom of his beloved son, and we are then adopted children that belong to him. We were by nature children of wrath, but now we are children who are blessed. That's the point of adoption. The substitutionary work of Christ, forgiveness of sin, imputation of righteousness is a gospel of adoption. We were once not his, we were adopted into his family through the gospel. You know what that means? That means if, if, if there's a wealthy man or woman that has no children and they would want to adopt a child, that person would become their heir. And that would mean at least three things. One is there's a legal grace. When you were once penniless, now once the seal has been put on the adoption papers, even though you have nothing, you are automatically heirs and rich. All this was a matter of grace, unmerited favor. Legally now, you're, you have become an instant inheritance of wealth. Their wealth is your wealth. That happens at adoption. Second, there's an intimacy and a, and a permanency. What was out there, this kind of relationship that, that really is not that um, um, one, there's really not that strong intimacy between once the adoption that you become my father, I'm your child. There's an intimacy, there's a permanency with the adoption of children into the home. Lastly, there's accessibility. Accessibility. When the adoption has taken place, the father now has opened doors for the child to come in, right? We're not calling the CEO. We're not calling Apple. We're not, we're not calling the president at 2 in the morning for a glass of water, are we? But your son or daughter says, Mom, Dad, I'm thirsty. I'll be right in. Can you wrap your head around that? That God, creator, sovereign, Merciful creator, 
of the universe has adopted you as a child. Put away the, the, for, for a moment what that was like growing up. This is the father of the universe who's perfect and loving and gracious and merciful. has adopted you into his family. You're now his child. He's now your father. He's now your father. You're loved permanently. You're loved unconditionally. Therefore, to love one's enemy is to be like Christ, be like the Father, to, to love as they love. Lastly, look at verse with me, the last verse here, 35b. How can we learn to live it out? How can we learn and how can we press into the gospel to live out this kind of love? For he, that's God, is what? Kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 36, be merciful even as your father is what? Merciful. For whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus suffer? And where do you see God really being kind to the ungrateful and kind, excuse me, uh, to, to the wicked? Where do you see God really being merciful to those who do not deserve mercy? On the cross. Where you and I who were once ungrateful enemies of God, but now we are adopted enemies. Children of God. On the cross, you see Jesus cursed, but he's blessing. On the cross, he's mistreated, but he's praying. The Lord was crucified at the hand of his enemies. The very people he came to save put him to death. They mocked him and they abused him. And yet he cried out, forgive them. They whipped him and beat him. Never said a murmuring word, but gave up his body. They took his tunic, they took his robe, they stripped him, and he allowed it. He did not demand his rights, repayment, or even ask for an apology. The Son of God gave his life for sinners so that even though we, ungrateful, even enemies of God, will be made sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. When we were enemies, Christ loved us, Ephesians 2. We're dead in our sins. We walked according to the devil. We're sons of disobedience. We lived in the passions of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath. But, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By loving us and pouring out his mercy on us, enables us, empowers us to love God, to love our enemies. God first loved us. We love God because he first loved. Never underestimate the power of redeeming love. Some of you have heard of Ernest Gordon. He was an officer in the British Army. He spent three years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp during World War II. He narrated his experience on the death railway in his book called uh, Through the Valley of Kwai. The book served as an inspiration to a film called To End All Wars. And let me tell you a story about how he learned to love his enemies. After the war, Gordon, British soldier, and other POWs from the River Kwai made their way a slow trek back to Britain, traveling through Asia by a train. And along the way, they ended up at a rail car uh, a rail yard next to a train full of wounded Japanese soldiers. Gordon describes this, this, their condition. He said, they were in a shocking state, he says. I have never seen men filthier. The uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. I hope you had breakfast. The wounded men looked at us forlornly 
as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse, refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. They were the enemies. Gordon tells how the train stopped and he and other people got up. And without a word, he says, he writes this, without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. We knelt by their side of the enemy to give them water, food, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word, end quote. He says, but not everybody was happy. One allied officer says, what bloody fools you are. Don't you realize that those are our enemies? Of course they did. That's the whole point. The dying soldiers were their enemy. And for that very reason, as the command of Christ, the love of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners like Gordon, like the other soldiers, as the Japanese soldiers as well, rose up in their hearts and they responded out of the gospel to the call of loving their enemies and doing good. Let that be said of us in this community. I may have stirred stuff up. Talk to your community leaders, our door, all pastors, their numbers are on there. If you want to talk through this and there's things in your life that you want to work through and get to this place, because this is where we need to be. And it could be a process, I get that. But let's not deny it. Let's not ignore it. Let's be a community of people who understand and drink deeply of the gospel and love, 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 love. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, we are moved. We are reminded of the gospel today, I hope. We see the, the poor state that we are in, how we were enemies of yours, we had enmity with you, we were God-haters, your word tells us. Until that day you awakened us by your spirit to see the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ freeing us from the bondage of sin so that we would respond to the grace of Christ. And without that call, without your work, without the cross, Lord, we are doomed. But because you love us, your grace is upon us, your mercy has been shown to us through the gospel. God, we pray that out of that fullness of Christ, out of the fullness of the gospel, we will love those around us, friends, family, even our enemies. You would give us wisdom on how to do that. And you'd work in our hearts to show us how it is to love and to do good so that we may bring you glory and show forth the infinite love we've received through the gospel to each and every one of us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.